Hello and welcome to the Folklore Podcast Book Club, where we look at books which intersect with areas of folklore and chat with their authors. On today's episode, we welcome Nina Allen to discuss her novel The Good Neighbours, which is published by River Run. Hot on the heels of her popular book The Dollmaker, The Good Neighbours deals with the unknowability of the past and the power of myths in shaping human narratives. While reinvestigating the murder of a childhood friend, the protagonist of the story uncovers the sinister truth of the alleged murderer, including his secret obsession with the world of disturbed Victorian painter Richard Dadd and the local myths about fairy folk. Nina is a British writer of speculative fiction who has won and been shortlisted for a number of awards. She joined me from her home on the Isle of Bute in Scotland. Nina, welcome to the Folklore Podcast Book Club. It's wonderful to have you here. It's really lovely to be here. Thanks so much for inviting me on. Thank you for joining us. Um, We're going to talk about your latest book, The Good Neighbours, which came out in June of this year, 2021, in just a moment. But before we do that, um, tell everybody a little bit about yourself and your body of work and and the kinds of subject areas that you write within and what interests you? Yeah, I'm Nina Allen and I've been writing and publishing fiction for, well it's getting on for 20 years now which is somewhat scary when I actually think about it and I would say it's, it's quite interesting with respect to the podcast because I think my way into writing could almost be said to stem from the British uncanny. I've always loved the, as it were, underbelly of reality in fiction Mm. and in thought. And I love the sort of old stories that dig into that but around the late 90s I started getting very interested in what contemporary writers were doing with it in fact I discovered that contemporary writers were doing stuff with it I you know it's something I really stumbled upon within my own reading and it very much chimed with my love of sense of place which has always been central to my fiction the landscape of my immediate surroundings has always inflected what I write and so I would say my first stories were derived from kind of folk horror type influences and popular horror type influences Um, I became interested in science fiction as well. And the two things sort of often mix and merge in my work. And the deeper in I went into writing and thinking about writing, thinking about what themes interested me, the themes of memory and time, I would say, Memory, time and place, I would say, are the most of three most central themes in my work, which obviously coincide nicely with 
your own interests here on the podcast absolutely i i was just uh, i was just going to say though those are kind of key concepts really aren't they to um that whole sense not only of the way in which people tell stories generally but also the the way in which people react with their world react with that landscape that is around them and and you know whether you're writing about alien worlds or the world on your doorstep you're still drawing on that kind of culture of approach aren't you Absolutely. And indeed, picking out the alien world that is also on our doorstep. I'm sort of very interested in that. I sort of I love natural history. Um, I love the idea of other beings very much sharing our space and things that are not noticed. And again, that slips very nicely into folklore. And everyone, everyone has an environment. I mean, we don't need to be writing or reading or thinking about ultra rural landscapes the the culture and and feel of what's come to be known as the edge lands has also really been of fascination to me i've lived in london for you know i lived in london for quite a few years i was born in london um i grew up in um the the midlands where you've got the world of human beings colliding with the natural world. And I've always found this a a rich, interesting landscape in and of itself. It's the landscape that most of us inhabit in this country. Indeed, our rural landscape has been shaped by that anyway. Um, And it's also so rich for a fiction writer because you have this is the space where people go out of their homes and into the environment and into nature, into wastelands. I, you know, I played on wastelands as a child, like there was an old Nissan hut not far from one of the places I lived where you'd go and find stuff. There was a a sort of a weird, um, where I lived for a while as a child near Litchfield um, in the Midlands, there was this strange no man's land between the housing estate where I lived and the canal. And it was kind of fenced off with these sort of barbed wire fences. But of course, all the kids were always over there. And, you know, you'd find stuff. We'd sort of like march along there and play all kinds of weird games. And um, looking for fairies, indeed, was one of them. Which kind of leads us on quite neatly, in a way, to to um, your latest book, The Good Neighbours, which, which is a strange fusion of these things, in a way, isn't it? Because it's kind of part crime investigation novel. It's part coming of age story, almost in in some respects, and it has this interplay with that kind of idea of the natural world and those slightly alien things that are perhaps on our periphery of vision and this whole concept of the fairies as you say which on the face of it sounds like a strange combination of of things to put into a book isn't it but but if you read the book which I have and thoroughly enjoyed then 
um, you realise that actually it's it's not at all unusual and works extremely well. So give us a kind of spoiler-free praise of The Good Neighbours. Well, it, I mean, I, how you've summed it up is 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 brilliant, and it's 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 always been difficult for me to describe it because, as you say, you say, well, it's a crime novel with fairies, and it's sort of like, yeah, how's that going to work? And my aim when I set out to write it was very much to write a novel that works a hundred percent as a crime narrative. That if you've you're not interested in the supernatural, you're not interested in the weird, you can still read this book and enjoy it as a murder investigation. But for people who wanted to dig deeper below the surface, to inquire more, there is another layer of meaning and iconography and imagery and sensation in the book that I think really opens it out and put simply it's a novel in which a woman Kath returns to the Scottish island where she spent a tranche of her teenage years she's returning as an adult to the place where her best friend Shirley and Shirley's mum and little brother were brutally murdered and the investigation always had it down that it was Shirley's dad, a violent man, a cantankerous man and a bit of a loner, somebody that people didn't really get on with. It was always believed almost instantaneously, yes, John Craigie is the killer, we need look no further. And that's how it was resolved. And Kath, who has always felt herself to be a bit in the wilderness since her friend's death, she's never really recovered from it for all manner of reasons. She returns to the island. She's got her own project in mind. She is a photographer trying to make it professionally. And she has a project going where she is photographing murder houses. Um, that is houses in which murders have taken place, ostensibly very ordinary homes, mostly now with new families living there, some of whom don't even know what happened in the house, but where this dark past has occurred. And Kath has this idea that she's going to go back to the island and photograph the house where the murders took place and that this is going to help her find closure on what happened and make her properly able to move on with her life. But of course, when she gets to the island, things are different from how she remembers them and all manner of other things come to light. And the deeper she looks into what happened then, the less certain she becomes about the verdict and conclusions that were reached about the murders. Now, you've written elsewhere that um, your own personal interest in fairies is quite a long-standing one. And, and, and the way that fairies are actually 
part of this book, I suppose, is, is very much reflective of the way fairies are part of our own culture in many ways. They're kind of on the periphery, or are they, and they're involved in this way, or are they, and people know that they're there, or maybe they don't. You know, it, it raises a lot more questions than it answers, as you would expect. Where does your own interest in fairies stem from, and and how have you drawn on that in the way that you've used the idea? I guess, I mean, it stems from childhood, as it would do with all of us. I mean, it's, I th- having thought about this a lot while I was, I, I wrote a series of, um, of blog essays when the book was released about fairies in fiction and about our relationship with them as an idea um, as possibly a reality. And it struck me as quite weird, actually, how the vast majority of people here in this very secular country now are still brought up with fairies as part of the kind of imagic background you know you're introduced to them your your parents are like go and look for fairies at the bottom of the garden the tooth fairy um they're 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 a part of our culture and we we embrace them rather naturally as indeed I did I loved I loved the as a child I absolutely loved the idea and um you know I was always going off to the bottom of the garden and the streams and I was always outside anyway and the idea that I might see something that others hadn't seen was enthralling. And what's what's really interesting is it merged with my love of the natural world. And as a again, as a young person, I became very interested in insect and invertebrate life and did a lot did a lot on that and studied insects, drew them kept spiders (laughs) I have written about these things a lot in my stories there's sort of like early stories there's a you know spiders feature these things and sort of the natural world the invisible world that a lot of people will just bypass it's it's you know there's a bunch of trees there's a fallen log whatever I was always poking into this and so the idea that there was an invisible world that people don't necessarily take account of in their day-to-day life. That idea was very normal to me. And that kind of merged with the idea of, well, the who is to say that there aren't other aspects of the world that we don't see and that remain hidden from us? And while I'm not ever going to say I'm a believer, because I am a natural agnostic and sceptic in all things, I think I said in another interview, I'm I'm not going to say I'm a believer, but I can imagine being a believer. I can imagine why other people do believe and the way in which such beliefs actually enriches your view of the world and what you take from the world day to day. And one thing about me is... I've never understood boredom, the idea of boredom or banality, because there's always, for me, 
telling stories, thinking about stories, writing stories. There's always another side to things. There's always something to look at, something to wonder about, something to think on. And I think that feeling of the magical or the unexpected or the unseen, literally just out of reach at the end of our own street, I think that's always informed me and by extension my work and I've often heard people say about my work there is this underlying sense of something either not quite right or not quite usual and this is where fairies make made their way quite naturally into the good neighbours for me because there I wanted with with my character Johnny who is the villain of the piece ostensibly from the beginning and in some ways remains I wanted to illuminate Johnny I wanted it's it's very it's very dull in a story if you've basically just got a bad guy and you know, there's your explanation for everything. He's a bad guy. And yeah, of course, such people exist, but writing about them isn't very interesting, at least not for me. And I, well, I, I tend to enter the world of my characters. And if I'm really entering somebody's world, then I'm going to see it from their point of view. So, you know, Johnny doesn't think he's bad. Therefore, what was Johnny's world exactly? Where had he come from? What drove him? Why was he bad? And in answering all these questions, I stumbled into his inner reality. And it, it both astonished me when I discovered this and yet also felt completely logical for that character who had grown up isolated who had grown up in a troubled home, who had grown up with violence. And where had he found his escape, his refuge from this very, very difficult young personhood? He'd found it in the mountains. He'd found it on the moors. And he'd found it in the stories told to him by the one person he felt he could truly trust and be himself with his grandmother. And don't we all get stories from our grandmothers? I certainly did. Yes, and absolutely. Certainly, they certainly helped to form my idea of the world. Now, and the other aspect of, of Johnny's interest in the fairies, which was something I was, I was going to um, bring up later on, but this seems like a more sensible time to talk about it, actually, is his interest in the work of Richard Dadd. And uh, Richard Dadd's most arguably most most well-known and most popular artwork the fairy fellas masterstroke um takes up a large amount of the cover of your book um say a little bit about um the kind of actual history of richard dad and his work and and how that kind of found a meaningful place in the story that you were painting well, yes. I mean, once I had 
once I had the idea that Johnny had this relationship with the world of the fairies, it was a very short step indeed for me to bring Richard Dad into it and the similarity, you know, the, the similarities in the in the characters or the parallels in the characters of Johnny Craigie and Richard Dad were immediately obvious to me because I've been so fascinated by Richard Dad from my teenage years. Um, I first saw a postcard reproduction of the fairy fella's masterstroke probably when I was about 14, 15. My mum had it. She'd been to the Tate Gallery and, you know, ages ago and said, oh, and I said, what, you know, what's this? I just couldn't work out what this incredibly weird painting was. And she said, oh, this, yes, well, of course, you know, Richard dad, you know, he killed his father and she didn't know much about him. Nobody really knew, you know, there's, there's, there's still big gaps in the story of dad, but I became fascinated by him from that point on and was always like looking for more information, just sort of not as an obsessive thing, but just, oh, you know, if he came up or if a new book came out on him, I'd be very interested. And Richard dad, people talk about him as an outsider artist, um, which gives you the idea that he was perhaps untrained, that perhaps he didn't practice as an artist, first of all. In fact, the absolute reverse is true. Richard Dad was a prodigy. He was one of the, if not the youngest um, member sort of allowed into the Royal Academy. He was, you know, started um, painting in his teens, prodigious talent, absolutely, you know, radiant talent. And he was soon, he was loved by his fellow students. He was a very um, gentle, by all accounts, accommodating, giving, generous spirited young man. And what he his his painting at that time was very much in the manner of Victorian fashion. He painted. Uh, there was a huge vogue for fairy paintings at the time, and they were usually taken from Shakespearean subjects. You would have Puck, um, you would have Ariel, you would have the Titania and Oberon from Midsummer Night's Dream, and there's all there's all manner of commentary on this and why fairies were so popular among among. Um, the explanations is that it was a way of basically painting the nude because you you couldn't have the Victorians really frowned on having all this naked flesh on show. But if it was fairies, that was very different. You could get that past the censor. So you can imagine all these upright Victorian gentlemen perusing the um, fairy literature and art of the time. So dad was painting fairies in in the in a highly detailed, beautiful, idealized version, along with contemporaries who were doing the same thing. He was also painting what we'd now call Orientalist subjects, which um, again were hugely in vogue at the time, as people, young, privileged, usually men, would go off on what was the grand tour and they would explore Europe. And it, they at this time, they were also starting to edge into the ancient world, um, Mesopotamia and the Middle East. And they would be seeing the glories of ancient Egypt. They'd be going down the Nile. 
they'd be visiting ruins, they'd be visiting the pyramids and marketplaces and bazaars and all these as it were how 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 they were seen at the time exotic subject matter and many of them wanted to buy art to commemorate their voyages or have art made en route and Richard Dad did exactly this he was employed um, by a, a dignitary who was going off on one of these tours, um, a, you know, sort of passionate Egyptologist. And he wanted, as you as you might now, uh, you know, imagine a imagine an election tour taking a, a photographer and journalist embedded with the crew. He took Richard Dad embedded as an artist. And Dad um, was absolutely, you know, crazy to go he really wanted to go he wanted to see these things he was absolutely enraptured by the idea of visiting the near east and seeing these things for himself and um to paint them from life which he hadn't had the chance to do before and he went off on this trip and he was working like a, a maniac he just couldn't he wouldn't stop he wouldn't stop he was just painting drawing painting drawing taking no rest he just sort of didn't want to let anything out of his sight and the other people on the tour and friends who kind of met up with him en route became very worried about his physical health and his mental health because he just seemed to be heading for a collapse and when in fact he did suffer a collapse everyone put it down to sunstroke and said look he's just overdone it um he needs to get home and he was shipped home his father took him back to kent um to a quiet village where sort of like you know you just need to get over this but he had basically he'd suffered what we'd now recognize as a psychotic break and um later medics and psychiatrists and psychologists who studied his case notes have said it's quite clear he was suffering from schizophrenia and other members of his family had this genetic trait as well there were others in his family later who also either took their own lives or ended up um, in medical care and dad was triggered as it were by the overload the sensory overload the unaccustomed conditions the heat the this superfluity of sensations pouring in upon him it's now thought that this is my this might have been the episode that triggered the schizophrenia that he was genetically predisposed to and he um yeah he he killed his own father, um, believing that his father, his beloved father, was the devil. And he ended up in Bethlehem Hospital, uh, later Broadmoor, where he remained for the rest of his life, painting, um, completing his greatest works, including the fairy fella's masterstroke, which took him 10 years to complete, and he never did entirely complete it. Um, his doctors all maintained in many ways he was the absolute model patient. He was someone that, you know, the doctors loved spending time with because he was highly intelligent. He was gifted. He was congenial company. But he never, ever, ever recanted 
his beliefs. He believed he was the servant of Osiris. He believed that he was sent to earth to do Osiris's bidding. And he believed that his father had been taken over by the devil. And he he never he never um, recovered from these beliefs. So the doctor said, you know, he's great. Go and talk to him. Just don't get him onto those subjects because it just opens up a world of pain and disturbance in his mind that he he just can't ever it's like he did have this two these two sides to him and the fairy paintings that he painted after the murder and after ending up in Bethlehem hospital were markedly different in type from the ethereal idealized visions of the fairy world that he painted prior to that um, if we look at the fairy fellas masterstroke and it's his most widely reproduced painting, as you said, and I have a life size reproduction of it here in my study, which I looked at many, many, many times during the course of the writing of the good neighbors. And it's I love having it here. Um, you see, the fairies are. They are dark, they are hunched, they are secretive. They are very much their own thing. They very much inhabit their own world. They do not care about human beings. They have nothing to do with us. They certainly have nothing to do really with the, the, the servants of exalted mortals at, that Shakespeare would have them be. Um, yeah, they were the fairies of the uncanny hedgerow, the night wood the unseen places, the fairy oak, they are very modern. If you, if I can put it like that, because I think we can safely say the, the image and thinking around um, fairy folklore has shifted towards a more, as should we say, independent-minded fairy folk. Yeah, it absolutely has, hasn't it? I mean, the, you're, you're kind of talking about the difference in, in Dad's work, aren't you, between kind of painting Disney fairies before all this happened and then actually reflecting more what the fairy folklore that, that we know in many ways is, is more actually about after the incident. It's a, it's, it's a tragic case, but, but it's also a fascinating a fascinating one in many ways. Absolutely, um, yeah. A book came out a couple of years ago, which which I had the pleasure of writing a chapter for, called "Magical Folk," which which was a a, a new look at, at fairy folklore across the UK, kind of broken down county by county. Um, I, I co-authored the um, chapter on Devon, being my county, which meant that I uh, kind of had a lot of interaction with with sort of the fairy ideas on my own doorstep now the good neighbors is i think i'm writing and saying pretty much based where you now live um is that right yeah absolutely yes yeah, yeah. so so how did you find that process the the fairy beliefs on your own doorstep um are they still particularly strong do they vary differently to to other areas that that you've that you've worked in in your life well at first time the re the reason i'm smiling there is 
um, the, the irony of this is that the book actually began life in Devon. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> it, it, it's, 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 um, I, lived in, I lived and worked in Exeter for nearly 20 years, and I know Devon and Cornwall really, really well. And uh, um, in the early um, 2010s, my partner and I moved back to, he had, pre, he had lived in Devon in the 80s, I had lived there from the sort of late 80s until the early 2000s. And um, we, we both moved back there together. And we were living in mid-Devon, um, sort of in the Chumley, Winkley area. That's interesting because I live in Chorley. Oh, my God. Yeah. So, you know, the whole area. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm five minutes away from Chumley. I know it very well. <laughs> that, that's really interesting. And, and well, the, the origins, the origins of the Good Neighbours were actually in a famous and tragic murder that happened near Winkley in mm. the 70s, the Luxton murders. And it's when a fascinating I, case. Oh, I mean, it's incredible. And I first, I first heard about that case when I was at university in Exeter. And there was, and if, you, but you know, this is a time to say, if you can furnish me with more information, I would be so grateful. There was a play on at the Northcote Theatre at the time. This would have been around 1988, 89, no, possibly early 90s um, when I moved back there. Um, about it was called Field of Blood or Red the Red Field or something like that, and it was based based solidly around the Luxton case. And I have never been able to find I, I you know I sort of think if I went to the Northcote and went through their archive, I'd be able to find the program. I'd know immediately what it was. But I've never been able to find it because it was like pre-internet really when this happened when this play. And when I moved back to this very area and indeed sort of saw the farm where it took place, um, I thought, well, I need, I, I, I just want to respond to this because it was a, a tragedy so deeply rooted in the landscape in, in Devon, in what happened in Devon to climate, to fortunes, to families basically over the course of a hundred years and then culminating in this horrible deeply deeply tragic murder suicide and so i was digging into that and then one what with one thing and another um we ended up moving 500 miles north to the isle of bute on the west coast of scotland and at that point uh, as i said earlier i i write very much responding to where I am. And the change in landscape was so profound and so disjunctive in so many ways. The book, I felt I, I need to, I wrote The Good Neighbours almost as a way of getting to know the place I'd arrived at because I feel I can only fully appreciate, understand and sense a place if I've somehow responded to it through my own words. My, my writing is a way of processing my surroundings and what's happening to me and how I'm responding to those surroundings. So I kind of shifted the whole book north. But the original germ of that murder-suicide stuck with it. So um, 
Yeah, it changed radically. And the fairy folklore in Devon is really ingrained. I mean, as you will know yourself, I, am, I, I will say at this point that I am not in any way an expert. My response to these things is instinctual. It's narrative. It's fiction. It's through literature. It's a literary response. I am not an expert in folklore. I love, you know, I've, I've been to the fantastic witchcraft museum in Boss Castle. I love seeing the real artifacts. I love hearing about the stories. I love reading about them, but I'm not personally an expert. And I sort of like, I, everything becomes filtered through my own literary sensibility. So I am not pretending to accuracy at all. I would never claim that. But of course, when I came north and wanted to continue these threads in the narrative, I thought, well, what, what is, you know, what are, what are the beliefs here? And so, of course, I read around them. And the one thing we discover, the, the further you dig into fairy mythology, is although it has very local interpretations, local manifestations, local specific beliefs, the roots, the root of it, the basic iconography, the basic belief is so remarkably sim similar wherever you go. And that that lends a lot of, I mean, for those who are of are of the persuasion to, to believe, this lends a lot of credence because it's 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 sort of like the universality of the of the iconography um, seems to point to something embedded in all of us at some level, some hidden knowledge, some repressed knowledge, some ancestral knowledge that's common to literally everyone on the planet. And I yeah, I, I love that. I really that's another thing that's compelling about the mythology in and of itself. Uh, you, you, you say by your own admission that you're not an expert in folklore but you still work with it you just work with it in a different way and that is this um narrative approach um in the description for this book on your own website actually you you describe that one of the aspects of this book is that it shows the power of myths in shaping human narratives um is that concept something that you draw on a lot in your work this idea of of using the myth and and the the strength behind it to to shape what people do and how it affects us day to day i i think i think so and i think if anything in the current times I and mean, we've just you know we've just seen these i know not to turn this whole podcast into you know political <laughs> diatribe well we've just seen the ab frankly terrifying heartbreaking and anger inducing sort of reports on what's going on with climate change and i think myths and that connection to our immediate surroundings that connection to generations that have gone before that connection to ancient stories that are all at their heart trying to tell us something about the world we live in they're not fairy stories in an airy fairy sense they are trying to pass on wisdom knowledge and 
an attitude to the world that is millennia old. And I think we would do a lot better now if we took more interest in mythology, in folklore, in the in the essence of what it is saying to us about our symbiotic relationship with the world we live in. We are not just here. We're part of an ecosystem. We are part of an ecosystem. And mythology is almost, you could almost see it as the testimony, a, a, a growing kind of oral history of that ecosystem of which we are just one rather horrifically destructive chapter. And I think our organic, our organic relationship with our surroundings is sort of translated via mythology. It's hugely important. And if we pretend it's not, or if we try to make out that we've somehow grown out of it or grown beyond it, or it's no longer relevant, we're making a big mistake. And I especially love modern interpretations of mythology, which show how it there is no division between old stories and very, very new stories, the way information is transmitted via the internet, via social media, via distance, as we are doing right now. Um, these things are just as relevant. They're part, they're just a new expression, a new mode of transmission. And, you know, the, the stories that use mythology in the digital age, I think are wonderful, relevant and, demon and highly demonstrative of how this stuff is still very relevant to our not just our storytelling, but our lives. Mm. Uh, another, another aspect that, that you also talk about is, is the fact that um, these kinds of liminal spaces, which, which you um, talk about as part of this narrative, are they're of course really important in folklore liminal spaces in many ways they're those spaces that are you know between night and day um you know where strange things happen the, the whole concept of of this sort of border um state but but also in terms of your narrative that liminal spaces are those places that our minds go to when something particularly traumatic happens as as is the case in your narrative um to kind of withdraw and to escape from that trauma do you think that part of the reason that we have such an affinity for these ideas of of a shared past or or concepts like the fairy world for example have a lot to do with this idea of a of a safe space of somewhere to withdraw to i i have i have a lot of sympathy with that idea um certainly at its most basic level um going out into nature is obviously curative restorative and essential to or my mental health anyway and the idea, you know, not just going for a walk 
but actually somehow getting in touch with other parts of yourself that aren't used or aren't listened to or aren't acknowledged in the rush and maelstrom of modern life. Um, I, I love particularly, there's a, there's a fantastic, uh, famous fairy novel, John Crowley's Little Big, which is a, a, a beautiful examination of how fairy and the modern world intersect. And he has a beautiful metaphor um, for how the fairy world might be tucked inside our own. It's sort of like it actually the world gets the, the further in you go, the bigger it gets, Crowley says. And he his his mythology, his interpretation of fairy mythology is that we humankind is on inhabit the outer, the very outermost layer of reality, which appears to be big, full sized and fairies when they are glimpsed by human beings, appear tiny, although in fact they're not according to Crowley's mythology, because if you go through, if you find these, the, you know, these commonly acknowledged what are called thin places, thin spaces where one world might penetrate another or what, where a human being may be able to pass through from quotidian reality into the realm of fairy, if a human being does do that, the further, the the, fur, the more layers you penetrate, the vaster the space. And so things on the inside are actually normal size and they get reduced in size by passing into this rather stark, banal human realm, which only contains a very small amount of what's really going on. And I, I think that metaphor that Crowley uses in his work is a, is a stunning a way of trying to understand what and how this mythology has been shaped. The Good Neighbours was a fantastic book. I really enjoyed it. And as you say, it, it works on many levels. If, if you're not um, particularly au fait with a lot of fairy folklore, it really doesn't matter. It is a, you know, a, a great investigative story on that level and then it has these extra elements below it. Um, I'm certain it's going to pick up some extra readers off the back of this interview because I know lots of people when I said that I was going to talk to you on social media came back and said, oh my God, I absolutely loved the doll maker. <laughs> so um, so they, there was much excitement. Um, so people can go off now and buy this from places where books are purveyed, preferably your local independent one if you can. If not, other places online are available. Uh, Nina, what else are you working on? What's coming up next for you that you can talk about? Well, I've just delivered my next book, which I'm really excited about. Um, and it, in a way, it's all. it also is digging very much into alternative belief systems. Um, I've used the, I really, really like the mystery framework as, as an architecture for a novel. Um, for the, the chief reason, be, I mean, I love reading them anyway, but as a writer, I find that as a writer who wants to do weird things, I find the mystery archetype extremely useful because it gives the reader something to grasp onto. And my personal belief is you can 
take the reader a long way into very weird territory so long as you give them like a narrative through line something to be curious about something they want to know the answer to and as long as you play fair with that reader and give them something you can do pretty much in narrative terms in in terms of structure and form anything you like and i i'm very interested in narrative form i like fractured forms i like found texts i like all those things and in in the new book which was written entirely over the lockdown period and in a non of it's very inflected by it not in it's not i hasten to add it is not a pandemic novel but the mindset and the the um what we've all our common experience of the time and not least the burgeoning and proliferation of dangerous conspiracy theories um, has really inflected this book and it's a book about somebody who gets caught up in a certain set of beliefs and disappears and the search for him not just the search for his physical being but the search for his reality and what happened to make him believe the things that he does does he really believe those things and might some of those things be real um that's the that's the territory of the next book which um as i say i that will be coming out in 2023 so it's a, a little while to wait but it's exciting to think about and um i'm just making the first tentative steps um, into a new project, which um, is is always a, 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 is the most thrilling time of writing a book, but it's also the most scary because mm. you don't really know what you're doing. You sort of don't let that secret out, but you don't. And each book is as scary as the last, or at least it should be if you're doing your job right. I see each book as very much as a new challenge very much as new territory for myself as well as the reader and that's what i love about writing it never ever gets old well like all good stories they all have to be born somewhere don't they and and that's the stage that the next one is obviously at um the good neighbors is available as i say all over the place if you want to find more about nina's work i'll put a link to her website in the show notes for this episode so that you can go and read the various parts on there but in the meantime nina thank you so much for taking the time to come on and talk with us today well thank you so much it's been fantastic i've loved the interview thanks thanks to nina for coming on and chatting about the good neighbors which you can pick up both online and from all good bookshops the Folklore Podcast Book Club is part of the Folklore Network. Our aim is to collect and preserve folklore resources for future generations, housing these in the Folklore Library and Archive. You can learn more about this at www.folklorelibrary.com. Please share our work and support us if you can. You can access extra material doing this via www.patreon.com slash the Folklore Podcast. Thanks for listening. See you next time.